This is Jared O'Brien for the Christians Engaging Culture podcast. Christians Engaging Culture exists to equip Christians to give a faithful answer in everyday cultural conversations and to turn those conversations to the gospel. For the past while, we have been doing a series called Getting a World That Doesn't Get It. Today, as part of this series, we are going to think about the topic of abortion. Of all the issues of justice in this world, this is probably the one that emotionally impacts me the most. It is an emotional issue. People who are pro-abortion get emotional about others impinging on their bodily autonomy. Women who have had abortions get emotional about the life that might have been. I get emotional thinking about all the innocent blood that has been shed in the name of choice. It is an emotional issue. And we need to make sure our emotions are being guided by the truth of the Word of God. In this week's podcast, we are listening to Clayton Craby from Reasonable Theology. He'll give you more of an introduction, but we're thankful for his permission to republish it here, and you can find more information about Reasonable Theology at reasonabletheology.org. Welcome to the Reasonable Theology Podcast, where we present sound doctrine in plain language. We're here to help you better understand, articulate, and live out the fullness of the Christian faith. And now, here's your host, Clay Craby. Hello, and thanks for checking out the Reasonable Theology Podcast. My name's Clay, and on this episode, we're going to do something slightly different. I'm going to be sharing audio from a sermon I recently preached on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. The sermon is titled, God is Not Silent, and my aim was to show that Scripture is clear about the sanctity of human life. It is clear about the taking of innocent life. God's Word is not silent about the topic of abortion. So often, even Christians will treat this as if it's some sort of ethical gray area, and as if Scripture is not clear as to what God's will is in regards to abortion. So my hope is that in this episode, by listening to this recent sermon, you'll be equipped with some information, some passages of Scripture, and also some tactics to help you share your pro-life convictions with others. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. As has been mentioned a couple of times in the service already, today is the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And so we are joining thousands of churches across the nation to uh, take a step back from the series that we've been in, for us that is Philippians, and focus on this important topic. You know, here at Grace, we think the uh, the best steady diet we can give you from the pulpit is a verse-by-verse exposition of a biblical text. But there is a time and a place for us to focus on a particular topic and see what several different passages of Scripture have to tell us about that. And that's especially important when the topic is something that's so prominent in our wider culture, something that features so largely in every single election and political discussion that comes about, and a topic in which there's such a sharp divide between what is right and what is wrong. I personally, I am convinced that there is no greater moral evil in our world today than abortion. 
It's the intentional killing of an unborn baby in the womb. In terms of the heinousness of what is happening, in terms of the sheer numbers of the amount of times it occurs each and every single day, all other injustices you can think of pale in comparison. Since 1972, that's the year that the Supreme Court handed down the decision known as Roe versus Wade, which effectively made elective uh, abortion legal in all 50 states. Over 60 million abortions have taken place. That's in the U.S. alone. That's almost double the number of the combined number of people killed by Stalin and Hitler. Almost double the combined death toll of Stalin and Hitler just since 19. 19- 72. Worldwide, since 1980, 1. 1.5 billion abortions have taken place, and Planned Parenthood, the largest abortion mill in our country, performs an abortion on average every 97 seconds. Just this past week, the state of New York passed new legislation that legalized abortion up until the moment the baby is born. They also repealed the requirement that made it uh, required to have another doctor on hand who would render immediate medical assistance to save a baby who was born alive after an abortion that did not go as planned. That was repealed. No longer illegal to render no medical assistance. The state legislature, when this passed, was filled with applause. There was a standing ovation. The governor of the state of New York directed the spire of the World Trade Center to be lit pink to celebrate the occasion. The World Trade Center, a building that stands in large measure to commemorate the 3,000 innocent lives taken on 9-11, was lit pink to celebrate death in a state which already kills 87,000 babies a year. It's the equivalent of having a 9-11 every other week. It's no different in many other states. In North Dakota, nearly 100 a month. In Minnesota, 850 every single month. These numbers should shock us. We should be uncomfortable with these things. This should be something that bothers us. We are in a culture that celebrates death. And yet every single one of us in this room knows someone who disagrees about whether or not This is a moral issue, whether or not this is wrong. In fact, many hold up abortion as a pillar of freedom, of equality, of progress in our society. There's nothing else where there's so sharp a divide where we identify something as being evil. But those who support it look and turn back around and look, no, you are immoral for trying to limit this from being available. So there's a debate, there's confusion in our culture, about the right and wrong of it. In fact, many Christians treat this as though if it's some sort of gray area, as though God is silent on the issue of abortion. But God is not silent. He is not silent about the sanctity of human life. He is not silent on the status of the unborn as distinct, valuable human persons. He's not silent also on whether or not forgiveness is available to those who have sinned greatly. 
He is not silent on how Christians are supposed to speak up for life while living in an ungodly world. And so I want us to explore this morning together what God's word has to say about this issue. We're going to see that Scripture is clear about the value of human life. Scripture is clear about whether the unborn counts as human life. Because that's where the issue really lies. Don't let yourself be distracted by the cacophony of side issues, of emotional arguments, of misleading language. There is one question alone that matters. Is the unborn a human person? Apologist Greg Kokel, he rightly frames the issue when he says, if the unborn is not a human person, no justification for abortion is necessary. However, if the unborn is a human person, no justification for abortion is adequate. So we're going to explore this question together this morning. First, we're going to look and see that God is not silent about the sanctity of human life. He's not silent about what makes us valuable, intrinsically valuable as people. The very first chapter of Genesis, we see that human beings are created unique in all of creation. They alone are created in the image of God. Humans are not simply a little higher than the animals, as some folks would have you believe. Instead, we read in Psalm 8, verses 4 and 6, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor, and have given him dominion over the works of your hands. See, man is not just a little higher than the animals. We see in Scripture that man is, in fact, just a little lower than the angels. That's how God places value on human life. And why it's Scripture that gives us the explicit reason. That's how we understand why human people have value. This common grace insight is not limited to believers. Everyone recognizes that human life is of ultimate value. That's why when you're watching some natural disaster, a hurricane, a tornado, a fire, and people are being interviewed and they say, all that matters is we got out safe. All their life, every material possession they have is gone, but they recognize that what matters is that they got out safely. That's why you have people willing to form search parties for missing children they've never met. That's why men and women risk their own lives in order to rescue others. That's why murder, the intentional taking of human life, is a crime of the highest order and it bears with it the stiffest of penalties. That's why a jury, when deliberating a murder case where the death penalty is on the line, they are told that they can only render a guilty verdict if they are certain beyond a reasonable doubt that the person is guilty. It is better for a guilty person to walk free than for an innocent person to be put to death for a crime they did not commit. Our secular culture recognizes that human life has value. And of course, 
We know what the foundation of that is. We see even in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 13, it states it clearly, you shall not murder. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19 tells us, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And, and among these, the things that God hates, it says, hands that shed innocent blood. But why? Why is murder so wrong? Again, it's because we are all image bearers of God. We see in Genesis 6, 9, it tells us that because people are image bearers of God, that murder is wrong and, and God places upon that the stiffest of penalties. As a result of being image bearers of God, every human person has intrinsic value and intrinsic worth. Scripture is clear that it is wrong to intentionally take the life of an innocent human being. No other consideration removes that from what our moral standard is. Nothing overrules the fact that we are commanded not to murder. It doesn't matter if you owe that person a lot of money. It doesn't matter if that person is a great pain or an inconvenience to you. It does not matter if anything that you could list, nothing removes that from you that we are commanded, thou shall not murder, thou shall not take innocent life. And practically no one is going to disagree with us. No one's going to disagree with you, for the most part, that murder is wrong. If you're going to have a discussion with somebody that's on the opposite end of the political spectrum with you, and you say, hey, are you for or against murder? Murder, pro or con? No one's going to disagree with you. Everyone recognizes that you should not take innocent human life. Even those who promote and advocate the so-called right to abortion wouldn't disagree with that. But this is important for us to first establish that it is wrong to take innocent human life because this is the first in a three-step argument that we need to know and be able to do with folks that ask us about this. First, it is wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Secondly, the unborn are innocent human beings. Therefore, abortion is wrong. It's a simple Argument, but you can see how everything hinges on the second part of that argument. No one's going to disagree that killing innocent human beings is wrong. However, if we can show from scripture, from science, from logic that the unborn are innocent human beings, then it follows that abortion is wrong. Everything hinges on this. This is where the real argument lies. Can you see how everything else that has to do with this discussion, everything that gets wrapped up in it, all the the, the rhetoric that's used, it all hinges on this point. So I want us to spend some time and look and see that God is not silent about the status of the unborn. Remember the quote from Greg Kokel, if the unborn is not a human person, No justification for abortion is necessary. However, if the unborn is a human person, no justification for abortion is adequate. And just as any argument that has ever been made in the history of this world in support of slavery, in support of genocide, 
The pro-abortion argument is absolutely dependent on denying the humanity of others, particularly in this case, the humanity of the unborn. We saw that the Bible is perfectly clear. Thou shalt not murder. Human life is valuable. Don't kill. Over and over and over again, it tells that explicitly. But is scripture clear about the status of the unborn? Is this perhaps more of a gray area? Is the Bible clear that the unborn are to be considered distinct human persons? Well, the Bible never talks about the unborn as anything less. Passage is likely familiar to you. Psalm 139, verse 13 to 16. For you formed my inward parts and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God knits together. Every birth that comes to be is because of the hand of God. And it is God who not only sustains the life of every one of us, but that causes that life to be and causes that infant to grow. Before that baby is born, God has planned out every single one of their days. God himself spoke to the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1.5, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Isaiah 49.1, the prophet declares, The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. The apostle Paul declared that God had set me apart before I was born. The psalmist says, on you was I cast from my birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Scripture is absolutely clear that the unborn baby is a distinct, living, individual, human Person Over and over again, we see this in Scripture. It is God that gives the blessing of children to a barren womb. It is God that gives the name and, and plots the destiny of that child before they are even born. Every single time Scripture mentions children, it is a blessing. Every single time that Scripture mention, mentions the unborn child, it is in the context of that child being a distinct human person. We cannot deny that the unborn is a human being. Thanks to ultrasound uh, technology, it has been decades since anyone without a seared conscience can believe that what is in the womb is anything other than a human baby. Despite the propaganda to the contrary, despite what you might learn in school, on TV, wherever else, you were never, ever a clump of cells. At no point were you a blob of tissue. This is a lie. This is meant to demean what the unborn child is. By the time most women know they're pregnant, six or seven weeks in, her baby's heart has been beating for weeks. A digestive system and lungs are developing. Tiny facial features are starting to take shape. 
The baby has arms and hands, nose and nostrils are forming. The inner ear starts to develop. By the time most abortions are performed, between 7 and 10 weeks, the baby's kidney, liver, brain are all functioning. Tiny, tiny nails grow on fingers and toes. The outer ears are fully developed. The limbs are well formed. The baby already responds to touch. We're not supposed to think about that. Abortion advocates speak of the unborn only as potential human life. That's, that's the language that we get in these debates. But we need to be clear. As Christians, we need to always tell the truth. We need to be clear that the baby in the womb is not potential human life. The baby is alive, not potentially alive. Things that are things that are only potentially alive do not have heart rates of 150 beats per minute. The baby is not potentially human. The baby is human. What else did you think was going to come out in the delivery room? No doctor has ever been surprised that he did not find himself delivering a baby giraffe or a small owl. The offspring of humans is human, even at the earliest stages of development. No one would deny this in any other area. Those who claim that they are science-based and fact-based cannot believe anything but this is a human baby. But the deceptive language is necessary to keep people from thinking about what abortion really is, and what abortion really does. Proverbs 18, verse 21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. I don't know of any area where this is more true than in the debate surrounding the right to life. They change the words. Death is in the power of the tongue. A baby becomes a fetus. Fetus. It's a word no sane person uses in any context outside of a biology textbook or a pro-abortion argument. You will never find a pregnant woman walking around saying, a fetus. At no point will you be invited to a fetus shower. This is language that is only used in the context of a pro-abortion argument. Baby becomes fetus. Pro-life becomes anti-abortion. Abortion becomes women's health. And just like that, if you are against the systematic killing of the unborn in the womb, you have just been named, labeled, and vilified as anti-women. Despite the fact that the vast majority of abortions, particularly in nations where they can opt for abortion based on the gender of their child. The vast majority of them are girls. Proponents of abortion call themselves pro-choice. The only choice they promote is the choice to abort your baby. Ask the average pro-choice person if a woman should be able to choose to pray in school. Ask them if she should have the choice to decide when her child, when and what her child is taught about human sexuality. Ask them if they have the choice to test hair products on animals. Ask if you have the choice to have a large Coke in New York. Ask if you have the choice 
to use a plastic straw in the state of California. They are not pro-choice. They are pro-death. That abortion mills like Planned Parenthood are not pro-choice. They are not saying, we just want people to be the, have the choice. They can choose. The fact that that is a lie is evident by their own numbers. And their annual report just came out the other weekend. Of the three pregnancy-related services offered by Planned Parenthood, there's only three, 97% are abortions. They are not good at math on the fly. It's about 41 times more likely to perform an abortion than to recommend someone give their child up for adoption or to recommend any sort, any form of prenatal care. They don't do prenatal care. It's a lie. Last year, Planned Parenthood alone, there's many other providers in our nation, Planned Parenthood alone performed 332,500 or 757 abortions. 332,757. You know how many times they referred someone to an adoption agency? 2,831. They are not pro-choice. This language that is used is deceptive intentionally. To say that a baby is not human is monstrous, scripturally false, it's unscientific, it's illogical. And to deny the humanity of the aborn has monstrous consequences. Because there is no intrinsic difference between the unborn baby in the womb that you used to be and who you are right now. Both the unborn baby and the 10-year-old and the 40-year-old and the 80-year-old are all humans at different stages of development. This is, this is undeniable. This, this shouldn't be a controversial statement. It shouldn't be something that makes you scratch your head. And that's why they've honed in on this, this fuzzier argument about personhood. Well, of course, of course the baby's human. No one, you can't deny that. We've got ultrasounds, looks like a human, comes from human parents. It's biology. It's a human. But is it a person? That's what was codified into law in the state of New York last week. The legally defined person in the state of New York, and other states will definitely follow, the legally, the legal definition of a person is a human being who has been born and is alive. A human being who has been born and is alive. Did you see what they did there? They admitted that the unborn is human. And they excluded the unborn from being a person because it is born. Not only do they admit the previous point, they try and exclude personhood in the very same sentence, a human being who has been born and is alive. Is that a right definition of personhood? There is no such thing as a human non-person. Such language has always been the seed of slavery and of the concentration camp and of the gas chamber. There's no such thing as a human non-person. There are only four differences between uh, the unborn baby and you. An unborn baby and and a grown-up or an older child. There's four differences. Size, level of development, environment, and and degree of dependency. None of these bestow personhood 
size. Yes, the baby in the womb is awful small. It's teeny tiny. We all understand that, especially at the earliest stages. But size does not make someone more or less a person, does it? Is an NFL player more of a person than me? I didn't expect the laughter, but <laughs> are, are men more of, are men more persons than women because they're generally bigger? Of course not. That's absurd. There's no moment in the womb where the unborn baby reaches critical mass and crosses the threshold from non-person to person based on size. It's absurd. The next difference, level of development. That an unborn baby is less developed than the newborn is irrelevant. Level of development does not bring about personhood. A five-year-old is not as developed as a 35-year-old, but is no less of a human person. Every argument in favor of abortion because uh, the life of the unborn child is not yet fully developed or, watch for this when you're hearing them speak, is not yet fully aware That same argument can be used to get rid of the newborn or the three-month-old or the cognitively disabled or those in a coma or the elderly and infirm. And we know throughout history that language has been used to do so. Right now in the Netherlands, thousands of people have been unelectively euthanized. That means murdered since 1990 with this same argument. What else is different between you and an unborn baby? Well, the environment's changed. But a baby on one side of its mother's belly button is not less of a person than when it's on the outside. The birth canal does not, cannot, will not confer personhood. A baby does not become something it wasn't the moment it is delivered. The baby's the same person it was in the womb. Its environment has changed. Lastly, the the difference between you and the unborn's degree of dependency. The pro-abortion crowd argues that because babies depend on the mother for survival, they cannot survive on their own until a certain point, which, by the way, that point is weeks and weeks and weeks prior to when New York has legalized abortion. But by this same argument would apply equally to the newborn or to the toddler, the severely disabled, the ill, no matter how you look at it, scripturally, scientifically, logically, the unborn child is a living, distinct human person, and intentionally killing one is murder. Abortion is not like murder. Abortion is not practically murder. Abortion is not tantamount to murder. Abortion is murder. And I might say abortion is actually far worse than murder. Quote from John Calvin. You'll forgive him, he's from the 1600s. We'll give him a pass on using the word fetus. The fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being. And it is almost a monstrous crime to rob it of life, which it has not yet begun to enjoy. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field, because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light. The abortion debate is about a single issue. Whether it is moral to intentionally kill the unborn, we can only conclude to do so is a monstrous evil. And that since 
the unborn is a human person, no justification for abortion is adequate. God have mercy on this nation that increasingly calls good evil and evil good. But what about those that that learned of the evil of abortion only too late? What about those who realize it was evil only after they've had one or encouraged someone to have one or donated some money, held up a sign? What about those who knew it was wrong, but they thought they had no other choice? They felt trapped. They felt backed into a corner. They thought this was the only way out. What about those that were simply deceived by the lies, the language of the abortion industry? Well, thank God he is not silent about the availability of forgiveness. Can they ever be free from their burden of sin? Yes, absolutely. Never forget this. Abortion is a great sin. Christ is a great Savior. Scripture tells us in Acts 13, verses 38-39, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, that is Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things. We sang it over and over again this morning. Everything, every sin, every evil deed, that is the power of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the path to forgiveness for every sin. No matter what you have done, you are not a greater sinner than Christ is a Savior. Jesus did not die on the cross only for the respectable sins. Jesus' blood does not only cover lying, misleading the truth, being a little selfish, having some pride issues. Jesus Christ's sacrifice covers every sin. He died for the sins we are too ashamed to name. Even our darkest sins can be forgiven in Christ. How is that possible? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, took all our sin and paid the penalty for our disobedience. Because he took our sin, we are able to take on his righteousness. That is that great exchange that took place on the cross and is available to us ever since. You're still in need of forgiveness, whether, whether it's abortion related or not. Go to Christ. Let your sin be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. The Bible tells us if we are, sorry, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is not silent about the availability of forgiveness to those who have been affected by abortion and his church should not be silent either. Speak out against abortion, yes, but speak louder against the problem of sin and the singular solution 
that is found in Jesus Christ. Let us, as a church, as Christians, be among the first to take the gospel to those who have considered, undergone, supported abortion in any form, and to all who needs God's forgiveness. And let us do so humbly as a forgiven sinner going to a sinner in need of forgiveness. Never forget that we too have been saved by grace. So lastly, let us consider what is it that we're to do? What, 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 how then should we live knowing what God's word has to say about this contentious issue? Well, God is not silent about the Christian response to abortion either. What would God have his followers do when they find themselves in a culture that is increasingly ungodly, that increasingly celebrates death. I guarantee you, New York is not going to be the lone state that changes the definition of personhood or pushes back the date as to when you can abort a baby. It'll be the first, the first of many. The issue of of euthanasia and all of these things, these are just going to come faster and faster. What is the Christian to do? Well, we can derive many principles from Scripture on how Christians are to seek justice, how we are to protect the weak, how we are to love others. Let's look specifically at Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. If you have a new King James in your lap, you'll read, Open your mouth for the mute, plead the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth. Judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. This could apply to many people in our world, but who could it apply to more than the unborn? Now, the best strategies for, for doing this are up for discussion, but let me suggest to you at least this much. We're to open our mouths for those who cannot speak for themselves. Speak up on behalf of the unborn. Use your vote. Use your voice to stand up for truth. Even in intense, in uncomfortable conversations you might have. Be courageous in defending the rights of the vulnerable. Be relentless in calling abortion what it actually is. The intentional killing of an unborn human person. Or to take up the cause of the unfortunate, of those who are appointed to die. Take up their cause. Support pro-life ministries and organizations such as the Women's Pregnancy Center here in town. Make use of the democratic process. Whatever you do, do not be silent anymore. God is not silent and we should not be either. We're to plead the cause of the poor and the needy. Foster. Adopt. Come alongside those in crisis pregnancy situations. Support them in their needs. Celebrate their choice. As it's so called to, to keep that baby and deliver that baby. The task can seem overwhelming. The world can seem like such a dark, dark place. And it is. It is dark. John 3.20 says, For everyone who does evil hates the light, does not come to the light, for he fears his deeds will be exposed. 
We live in a dark world. This disregard for human life is but a symptom of the world's disregard and hatred for God. Celebrating abortion is the depravity of man on full display. But as Christians, as those who know the hope of the gospel, we cannot despair at that. We do not retreat from the darkness, but we shine a light and we drive the darkness back. That is what we are called to do over and over again in Scripture. Take heart. Christ has overcome the world. He is coming soon. Jesus Christ will return. And on that day, he will right every wrong. But between this day and the last day, we must not grow weary in doing good. No matter what the culture does, we are called to stand firm in the truth. We're called to shine as lights in the darkness. We'll see next week when we pick Philippians up again. We're to proclaim the gospel of God's free grace as we pray for softened softened hearts and we pray for changed minds and we pray for saved lives and we pray for the salvation of souls. And even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Reasonable Theology Podcast. Be sure to visit reasonabletheology.org for more helpful resources on understanding, articulating, and living out the Christian faith. In addition to the show notes for this episode, you'll find articles, videos, book reviews, and much more. That's reasonabletheology.org. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Christians Engaging Culture. We hope to have our webpage with more resources on abortion live by this Friday, the 20th of November. I know there will be some very good resources available there, including the testimony of one woman who was raped and after that horrible experience still kept the child. Abortion is a big issue. Outside of people not hearing the gospel, I would argue that it's the biggest injustice issue of our time. We need to be informed as Christians and we need to know how to respond faithfully. That's what CEC is here for. We'll be thinking through the topic of abortion a bit more next week. But until then, and especially now, always remember that Jesus is a far greater saviour than you are a sinner.